The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Vice President Pence has been speaking at the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C. Among his comments, he said that Chinese security agencies have masterminded the wholesale theft of American technology, including cutting edge military blueprints. Of course, this is incredibly relevant, especially in light of the blockbuster Bloomberg Businessweek story that just came out talking about a microchip implanted in computer uh, motherboards that were used in everything from the Pentagon to Amazon to Google. Joining us now is Matt Chiodi, Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer at Redlock in Philadelphia. Matt, I, I want to just start with that story reported by Bloomberg Businessweek. Are you concerned reading that that China has gotten access to the to our biggest uh, technology companies in the United States as well as potentially the military. You know, absolutely. I think that this story, right, now, mind you, all of this is allegedly reportedly. But if what is being reported is true, this could be very, very dangerous. Why? Well, it could be dangerous for a number of reasons. But number one, most of the time when we talk about cybersecurity, we're talking about software-based hacks. In this specific incident, we're talking about hardware. Hardware hacks are rarely ever talked about. It's usually just something that is talked about as being theoretical, something that could happen. If this did in fact happen, you need to remember that allegedly these chips are so small that they can barely be seen by the human eye. And what happens is with these chips allegedly is that they allow code to be inserted into the operating system that's running on top of this hardware. This could let somebody do any number of things, including potentially exfiltrate, da- exfiltrate data or do other things perhaps far more nefarious. Matt, as the chief information security officer of Redlock and previously the head of cloud security and global head of cloud security at Cognizant Technology Solutions, if you received a telephone call, an email, a communication from a client, asking, what should I do? What would you say as a result of this revelation? The first thing that we would advise them to do is to begin, start looking at, as part of their third-party risk management program, to ensure that they are actually looking at the security of the hardware. I have been in many different corporate security programs, and very, very few of them actually look at the security of the hardware. It's usually implicitly trusted, right? The chip comes from manufacturer X. I don't even look at it. I just trust that it'll be there securely in, in just directly. How do you do in this though? Case, how do you do it? I mean, do you it actually take the new- box apart and look at the original design and match what's there with the original design? Most corporate security programs do not have the technical resources to do this. 
What's been reported, especially back in 2015, right, with Amazon Web Services that allegedly found this, they actually didn't even have the expertise. Allegedly, they sourced this out to a hardware security firm that found this, right? And we need to give major kudos to AWS for finding this, if in fact this is true. Um, Reportedly, they were the only ones that found this, and then, of course, this went to other companies. But absolutely, if somebody called me today and they were asking, what should we do? They need to immediately invoke a hardware security firm because more than likely, they do not have this expertise in-house. I guess one thing that I'm struck by is what don't we know as far as what's been hacked and, and what has already um, you know been infiltrated in some way or another. I mean, do you think that the sort of infiltration, not just by China, but other foreign nations as well, into U.S. tech is much broader than people could ever begin to imagine? Well, you have to remember, right? I mean, we're talking about uh, Supermicro, allegedly, right? This is the company that supposedly the People's Liberation Army of China supposedly infiltrated. They produce a great number of the world's motherboards, right? And you have to remember, motherboards, they're in everything, right? They're in everything from MRIs to special purpose computers to weapon systems. We don't know at this time how, how many systems this actually got into. But if it did, we have got some very serious things to look at in the coming days. What kinds of effort do you believe that the private sector has already implemented, if any, in order to work with the U.S. government to prevent these kinds of infiltrations? At this time, I mean, from what I have seen, again, most corporate security programs really don't have much expertise when it comes to hardware security. I think what we're going to see in the coming days and months is that there will be probably an expansion, and I think just the public interest in this, because, you know, this goes very broad, right? Again, computers run everything these days, from voting machines, right, to mobile phones, etc. It's going to get very, very broad. And right now, you know, again, it's been reported that this is still part of an ongoing top-secret probe, so we may not get a lot of answers now, but I can guarantee you in the coming days, this is something that's going to have a lot of attention, just like election security. Matt, just real quick here, I'm wondering, do you think that the U.S. has the capacity to uh, generate, to produce some of the parts necessary and motherboards necessary for our computers? I think we do. We definitely have the technology to do it. Now, again, we're talking about output, the ability to manufacture this. That could take a while for that to come online. But I think, you know, the other thing that's really important here, and I guess this would this might be the bottom line for this, you need to remember, motherboards, these kind of chips, they're in everything from voting machines to mobile phones and MRIs. And again, this was only once talked about as being a hypothetical. But now, allegedly, it's become a reality. So companies need to immediately step up their third-party risk management programs and to begin to really dig deeply into not only software development, but now hardware as well. I really fear that this is only the beginning. Thank you very much for being with us. Matt Chiandi is the Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer for Redlock. They are based in Philadelphia. And the topic is hacking and infiltration of hardware systems in the United States. The topic is trade and the effect on the industry that brings you many of the products that you enjoy, such as shoes and clothing and various apparel items, because the final tariff list that President Donald Trump has put together, along with his trade representative for China, 
includes textiles and many of the products that are used in the United States that then go into various types of apparel. Here to help us understand the topic is Edward Hertzman. He is the founder and the president of Sourcing Journal. Edward, thanks very much for coming into the studio. Can you just describe for people the role that China plays currently in the supply chain for, let's say, the apparel industry? Well, China is has a huge um, role in the apparel and footwear industry here in America. Just to put it roughly into some numbers, about 33% of apparel coming into this country is manufactured in China and about 50 to 60%. The numbers could even be closer to 70% this year of all footwear imported into America are coming out of China. Um, If $20 billion of apparel came from China this past year in 2017, uh, India, which is also a mega player in the market, uh, exported $4.5 billion into America. So that shows you how vast of a difference and how large of a advantage China has in this market. So I just before we get into some of the recent trade agreements that we've struck, I'm wondering the tariffs that we've seen so far implemented, uh, particularly in this space on China, do you expect those to reduce the proportion of apparel and, and footwear that comes here from China? Well, as it stands today, um, the majority of the tariffs that have been in, put into place are not affecting apparel and footwear. The concern that, that the industry has is that um, the next round, which he is threatening, of $275 billion, which would basically include all $500, million plus, $500 billion plus coming out of China, would have to include at that point apparel and footwear. And therefore, um, people are scrambling to figure, figure out contingency plans. Um, The harsh reality here is since China has so much market share and is such a vertically integrated country, meaning that they not only sew the garments, they produce the fibers, the fabric, you know, the raw materials, it's going to be very, very difficult for people to move in a short period of time and even in a long period of time to these outside countries just because whether it's Vietnam or India or Pakistan or Cambodia, they just don't have the capacity available to to make up the market share that China has. And there's going to be baked in inflation into the system. So while there's a rush to these countries, being that there's limited capacity, these countries are going to charge more money. And therefore, whether it's China or another country, the prices are going to go up at the factory level. In looking at things like air freight demand, global air freight, what is the trend right now? Well, you know, Speed to market has been top of mind for everyone right now. You know, we like to study models like Inditech, Zara, and what makes them so successful is their ability to get goods into the market very quickly, uh, reduce inventory liability, get goods into the market quickly. That allows them to react uh, if things are working, and if it's not working, their inventory liability is less. It's, it's not as you know, it's not as large. So one of the trends that we're seeing is while it's more expensive up front. Air allows us to react very quickly. We don't have to wait for a, you know, a 20, 30, 35 day boat to get stuff in. So it's we're seeing more of a trend as it applies to speed to market. Um, people are trying to utilize that as, as a means to get product in quicker. All right. So let's let, let's get to the recent trade agreement that uh, we recently struck with Mexico, the U.S. and Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people are saying there are aspects of it that are more free trade, act, uh, parts of it that are more protectionist. Where do you stand? What do you think the retail uh, industry will stand when this all shakes out? Will it be in a better position or worse? So um, 
there's a pro and a con uh, to this recent agreement. So it's now no longer NAFTA. It's the USMCA, the United States-Mexico. YMCA. Yeah. MSCI. MCA. I can't, so I, can't, I can't get this acronym down. USMCA. So United States-Mexico-China okay, agreement. All right. I think that's, I think that's it. Um, on, a, on a high level, the, the, the positive is that it shows that Trump is not completely against global trade policy and global trade. So he is... You know, maybe the bark is, is a little bit bigger than the bite. He did not completely dismantle this agreement. But if we get into the nuances of it, um, there's a little bit that we have, to, we have to realize here is that he's changing some of the conditions of the agreement. So if you're manufacturing, and it's really going to impact auto and, and apparel the most. So if you're looking at the apparel industry, um, the uh, sewing thread, the pockets, the fabric all have to come from one of the countries that are part of this agreement. Now, if we look at Mexico, largely it's a CMT-based country. A lot of the fabric or, or components may be imported in, stitched there, and then sewn into America. So the question that a lot of people have is, well, how quickly can a country like this become vertical? How much of its um, uh, accessories and inputs are they getting from China? Um, so how much will be business as usual, and how much will be a scramble to figure out how to continue importing the goods into this country duty-free? In that same context, is it possible that Mexico has the technology, the workforce, and the infrastructure to, let's say, be a much bigger player in the footwear industry? Well, yes. I mean, absolutely, they have the, the workforce. They have the skill set. Um, a company like Flex, uh, who works with Nike, has a factory there. You know, they're, they're really leading the charge in some of the automation um, in the footwear space. The question is not... If the question is when and how quickly can can these countries uh, um, position themselves to to be a larger player, and if something happens in China or if, if there is a larger impact with Mexico, um, there is going to be a period of time where there will be uh, a lot of chaos happening because nothing happens overnight in this industry. Just uh, I'd love to get your thoughts quickly on just in general, given President Trump's current positions on trade, uh, imposing tariffs, and given the precedent that we have with this new agreement uh, with North America, do you think that things are going to get substantially harder and more expensive for retailers just based on the supply chains? Absolutely. There is no way around it. So, you know, there's 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 not an anonymous uh, uh, agreement on this, but most of us believe that he will uh, impose the balance $275 billion in tariffs, which therefore will impact all apparel and textile coming out of China. If that's the case, um, anywhere from prices of goods in order to maintain the current margin of retail will have to go up 10 to 25% uh, just to keep the status quo. Uh, companies like um, Walmart and Gap have already been public in saying that they're going to have to raise prices in order to uh, you know, incorporate these increased tariffs. You know, especially for lower margin retailers and brands, yeah. there's no way around it. Edward Hertzman, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, 
Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Chinese hackers have implanted tiny microchips in servers that made their way into the data centers of some of the world's biggest companies, including Amazon and Apple. This all according to an investigation that was conducted by Bloomberg Businessweek. And it's important to note that in emailed statements, Amazon, Apple, and another company mentioned in the story, Supermicro, have disputed summaries of Bloomberg Businessweek's reporting. Here to tell us more about this story is Jeremy Keene, Bloomberg editor. Jeremy, thank you very much for joining us. Can you maybe describe for our listeners the genesis of this story? Certainly. Um, So Jordan Robertson and Michael Riley, who report on cybersecurity uh, for us out of Washington, they, starting with a tip, they, they began researching the story, pursuing leads. They talked to, eventually the number reached into triple figures, more than 100 people they spoke to. And then a core group of about 17 um, people who gave us a window into the story. Oh, oh, so let's talk about what the actual issue is. Mm -hmm. There was a microchip that uh, some of these big tech companies found. Right. In happenstance. Yes. Tell us about that. Well, so, you know, most people I think are used to hearing about software hacking where, uh, you know, people use code to uh, to get data out of out of places. And this story is more about the technology supply chain and how um, official sources uh, tell us that they um, that they were able to at the factory level get a small microchip uh, into a server motherboard operated uh, at, at plants that were subcontractors to an American company they called Supermicro. They China, that China yes. was able to sort of get this microchip into the motherboard. Right. And then people, this is a very, this, this company sells a lot of server motherboards. It uh, goes into servers and those go into data centers um, for, for clouds. Uh, in this case, uh, a video streaming company was one of the ones that we focused on. Um, and then into the data centers run by larger entities. All right, just to try to condense it, just at least for my mind, in in 2015, Amazon was looking to take over a company called Elemental Technologies. And as part of the due diligence that they were doing to make this acquisition, they're based in Portland, this is Elemental, they had to ship some of the servers that the company used that was supplied by a company called Supermicro or Supermicro Computer. They're based in San Jose. They take these servers, they ship them to a third party to do an investigation. And what they find on the board, on the motherboard here for these servers is a chip that was not part of the original design, right? Exactly, yes. And what does this chip allow whoever put it there, in this case, we maintain the Chinese, Mm -hmm. what does it allow you to do? So I want to be clear that it's not that we're saying that uh, there's evidence that user data was taken or anything like that. But they, what it does is it gives them deep level access to a computer. So at the at the level where um, an administrator might be able to access a system, 
that's what you get. So it's possible that that an attacker could uh, get into a system without a password, look at different parts of the network, um, and and that that kind of thing. Okay, but Amazon reported this right when they were they were looking to make this acquisition of Elemental, and they found this out. Right. They went whoa. And they contacted the Department of Defense, right? Right. And our reporting suggests uh, uh, they, they contacted the authorities. We don't uh, know exactly um, who, who it was in the story. Okay. Um, they did, um, uh, so th- this went out and the, um, the government already had some intelligence to suggest that this had been going to happen. And at the point that they learned that there had been a sighting, they began to investigate it more deeply, and we report on that. All right, so just sort of to give a sense of what the implications here are, because this is actually massive. The idea that China systematically implanted chips in the hardware that ended up on computers from everywhere from the Pentagon to the biggest technology companies, uh, where they could basically have a backdoor entrance to a lot of different computers, has huge and vast ranging implications. I'm just wondering, I mean, from what you were getting a sense of when you were talking with people, was this the reason why we're having trade tensions with China? Is this the reason why, you know, the the U.S. government has been increasingly tense with the nation? What's going on here? Well, our reporting shows that it's certainly something that's been of concern. Uh, We report that uh, there was a, uh, there were meetings that took place in uh, several years ago uh, at the high level that in which it was at, technology companies were asked, can we find a solution to this? Um, and no, no evidence that we've found one has emerged yet. Um, as to what's going on, you know, behind behind the scenes, uh, we don't know the extent to which it's a motivating factor, but we do report that it's a reason for their concern. All right, Jeremy Keen, thank you so much for being here. This is not going to be a one-day thing because the implications here are pretty substantial. We don't know whether China necessarily used this backdoor uh, exit, I believe, to access any information, but it does have pretty broad implications for uh, the supply chains that we have with China, where they make a lot of this technological equipment, as well as the ongoing tensions uh, with respect to trade. Jeremy Keen, thank you so much for being with us. Jeremy Keen is Bloomberg editor uh, who was working on this story that was reported out over a year with interviews with hundreds or actually more than 100 individuals. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with my co-host Pim Fox, and this is Bloomberg Markets. We turn our attention now to GW Pharmaceuticals, and I want to introduce the chief executive, Justin Gover. And GW Pharmaceuticals is set to launch its cannabis drug after receiving a favorable drug classification review from the Drug Enforcement Agency. It has been previously approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Justin Gover, thanks for being with us. Tell us about the the schedule for the launch of this cannabis drug and what it's designed to do. Well, thank you for having me on the show. So, so this drug is called Epidiolex. It's been approved uh, by the FDA for two uh, forms of childhood onset epilepsy. So these are patients with seizures that have uh, proven very difficult to control with existing anti-epileptic drugs. Um, the drug is uh, 
contains a molecule called cannabidiol or CBD, which is a part of the marijuana plant that does not make you high. And the product itself has been standardized and formulated to FDA standards to produce a medicine that can be prescribed by doctors, reimbursed by insurers, and so on. So that medicine was approved at the end of June. Um, the DEA uh, had uh, three months after the end of June to put the product into a, a schedule. They did that uh, about a week ago now. Um, it's the lowest form of class, um, restriction classification within the uh, scheduling rec uh, regulations, and the drug will be available on prescription in about a month or so. How does the price of the drug compare with other uh, anti-epileptic medications? We've priced this medication such that it's in line with the other branded anti-epileptic drugs that these patients use. So um, what the, the philosophy behind that is, is uh, you know, we believe that obviously this is an, uh, an innovation, a first-in-class therapy providing relief where uh, other drugs have failed. But with, that, with all of that said, we, we, we've taken a pricing approach, which is to, essentially to be in line with, with the care that, the, that these patients now receive. Justin, you're also working on other types of therapies. Can you give us a hint of your pipeline? Certainly. Well, at GW Pharmaceuticals, the company uh, was founded actually 20 years ago with the sole focus of looking at cannabinoids. Cannabinoids are molecules in the cannabis plant as potential uh, pharmaceutical products. So what I mean by that is not medical marijuana, not sort of unstandardized, unregulated oils, but actually science-based solutions with formulations that have been manufactured appropriately and taken through the FDA process. So in addition to epilepsy, um, our work so far suggests that cannabinoids have promise within the field of multiple sclerosis, within pain, uh, within uh, psychiatric disease, even oncology. So um, what we believe is that the approval and rescheduling of epidiolex, this epilepsy medicine, really opens up a brand new field for cannabinoids as therapeutics uh, for the future. And, you know, we at GW see ourselves very much as leaders in the field worldwide and, and have, have, have real hopes now that a number of these future medications in different therapeutic areas um, can realistically become available as prescription medications in the future. Justin, definitely a lot of people are interested in the cannabinoid-based uh, medications, but there obviously is a lot of interest in medical marijuana use because people think that maybe it will have a direct tie to uh, recreational use. And I'm wondering, is there anything that you've seen with respect to the study of marijuana and its potential effects that will make it more palatable for the FDA, FDA or the government to declassify it as uh, an illegal drug? Well, I think that the, the central approach and philosophy that, that underpins our research is that when it comes to treating patients who are sick, that the appropriate way to do that, if at all possible, is through the utilization of prescription medications that have been uh, approved by the FDA. After all, you know, that, that is what we are used to in our day-to-day -day lives. When we go to a physician, we expect to have a medication for which we understand the dosing, the safety profile, uh, the, the efficacy, and so on. So, you know, I, I think um, the impact of, of, of medical marijuana and its impact on recreational use is a, is a, is a parallel um, is a, is a parallel discussion. Yeah. And I think what the FDA 
made a point of saying, and the DEA reiterated it last week, was that when FDA approved Epidiolex, this um, yeah. specific medication, they were not approving marijuana. I see. They were so, not approving even the molecule um, in various forms. Yeah, they were Justin, Justin, this medication. Justin Gover, we have to leave it there, unfortunately. Really interesting. Justin Gover, chief executive of GW Pharmaceuticals, uh, based in California. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.